And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan and Stratton and Gary K. Wolf flying solo without any guests at all on the Cood Street Podcast! Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. It's been weeks since we've talked. It's so without... good to see you again. It's good to, see, good, to, good, to, good to chat with you. It's like we were talking um, just before we started recording this, that the first several podcasts if not the first couple of dozen podcasts were were things we were making up as we're going along and 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 now we're sort of back to that uh, every once in a while just to check in and see how you're doing so as as wonderful it is to have guests how are you doing jonathan um not too bad i'm, I'm sort of moving into a slightly saner time of the year gary you know uh mm -hmm. having delivered the best science fiction fantasy of the year nine and then delivering meeting infinity I'm now working on the books that follow on after that. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a hiatus. I'm watching far too much television, which actually is kind of good, and beginning to feel the itch to start reading the enormous stinking pile of short stories that I have to get through. Um, but, but some of them are not stinking. Some of them oh, the vast absolutely. majority of them aren't stinking, Gary. You know, It's more the, the fact that there's an enormous great pile that makes me look at it as though it were stinking rather than any of the individual stories within it. Just as a preview, what should we be looking forward to with great enthusiasm in meeting Infinity? I think there's a batch of really, really interesting stories in it. The, the concept behind the book is how we change ourselves to integrate with the future. So how, whether we do it physically, mentally, or whatever else. And hmm. Yeah. And so it does cover biotech and all kinds of other things. And there's, some, there's a really great story in there by Cam Hurley. There's a, there's a new story in there by Ian MacDonald that relates to his forthcoming novel, Luna. Um, whole bunch of stuff. Um, I'm very happy with the book. It's one of my favorites in the Infinity series. But this deals with human adaptations. This is kind of a, um, oh, I don't know, man plus sort of stories? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I mean, uh, the arc of the series, which was never supposed to be a series, was that we did uh -huh. sort of... Uh, the first book did the far future. Second book did a populated solar system, much, I guess, like inspired by books like 2312, that, mm. that hadn't been outside the solar system. And then um, Reach for Infinity did the efforts to get off the planet or that period of time when we were striving to get into space but weren't established there yet. And then it was like, well, what other things are going to happen? And I think one of the things that's clear is that human beings are going to have to physically transform themselves to adapt for the future. Uh, if anything, Stan Robinson's Aurora, which has largely kicked my faith in science fiction in the teeth so desperately I don't know if I can come back to it. Um, lar largely, I, I wanted stuff that was believable, and I felt that was believable. Uh, the next book that I'm doing after that, Drowned World's Wild Shores, basically crosses over with, with climatological science fiction and is all, mm. is all about, I mean, I guess, inundated, drowned la landscapes. Science fiction actually has all sorts of classic drowned landscapes for whatever reason uh, that they occur. And so it's those sorts of stories that I'm looking for for that book. And that, that book will come out uh, first quarter of next year, I guess. Uh, oh. meeting, meeting Infinity will be out just before Christmas. So, yeah. And how about you? What have you been doing? Uh, well, interestingly enough, I've been reading some of the things, same things you've been talking about for for another project I'm working on. I reread, for example, I didn't reread the whole Mars trilogy, but uh, but I did look at the ending of Blue Mars, uh, and not only can you clearly see the setup for 2312 in that, I, I'm mm -hmm. sure that when he was writing it, he wasn't thinking he was setting up 2312, 
But you know, the colony on Mercury is there at the end of, of, of Blue Mars. Uh, and by the same token, I was just finished doing a, a, a piece on uh, disasters and wastelands in science fiction. So I was thinking the same thing about how many drowned worlds there have been since uh, probably S. Fowler writes the deluge was the first one back in the 1930s that really had um, you know England inundated but of course being S. Fowler Wright and being an Englishman writing in the 1930s he was pretty much only concerned with England being inundated. <laughs> yes uh, n n never mind those parts of the world that actually are regularly inundated. Exactly. The ones, the ones that are actually going under is not, are not his problem but then uh, I did not reread it, but I remember liking Stephen Baxter's Flood a lot, partly because yep. he had figured out a way to actually inundate the world. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the polar ice caps melting and the glaciers melting and that sort of thing. Apparently, and when we have Stan Robinson on, I'm sure he'll correct me about this. Apparently, if you melt all the ice, you can raise sea levels a couple of hundred feet, which is catastrophic. Of course. But you can't inundate Mount Everest the way Steve Baxter did. <laughs> so he had to find the water somewhere else, and he made a credible argument, at least credible to me, that the water is there, it's just most of it in the interior of the Earth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, which, which raises an interesting yeah. question. I, I ran into this question again. It's, it's, it's one that I come up against hard science fiction writers all the time. Because I am not a scientist. I'm not more educated in in the sciences or more up-to-date with them than most other science fiction readers are. But it really takes, it, it, somebody like a Steve Baxter can probably pull the wool over my eyes, whereas somebody like um, a Michael Crichton usually can't. Well, without, you know, climbing onto the really rather fun sort of kick Michael Crichton bandwagon, right. um, it's not supposed to convince you, I don't think. You know, I think if you look at what someone like Baxter does, you know, he wants to convince you, and he puts the work in. Uh, whereas for Crichton, it's more of a setting rather than an explanation. And I think mm -hmm. also for a lot of the other sort of sort of drowned, inundated landscapes in science fiction, where they're almost more science fantasy, it's like, give us a evocative landscape, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, even someone like Ballard didn't really go in, you know, in you know, deeply into the science that formed his inundated world it was just no, enough that it was happening exactly uh, and I think that uh, when, when Stan Robinson wrote Venice Drowned for example he was he was interested in the idea of underwater excavations of Venice and wanted to get from here to there yeah. my only argument is that a, a, a really something that just strikes me as not working at all can just throw me out of a novel uh, in a way that makes it hard to accept the rest of the landscape. Here's a good example. Yeah. Um, there was a novel, uh, and I hate to pick on, on, on this guy because he's a writer who writes very good stories and he's a very popular writer and he, he keeps your pages turning. But Jack McDevitt had written a novel called, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a Jack McDevitt novel, called Moonfall. Yeah. And something happens to the moon and within hours it starts, pieces of it start falling to the earth. And I thought, at the time, and I said this in, in the review I wrote at the time, those, those fragments of the moon would have to be traveling really, really fast, and they'd have to be in the right <laughs> orbit. And it's, I, I actually asked some friends of mine who knew more, knew more about astronomy than I do, could that happen? And they said, it's, it just it doesn't work with orbital mechanics. Yeah. So 
The idea of the Earth being destroyed by fragments of the moon was what he wanted to get at, and once he got into the adventure story, it was fine. Yeah. We are maybe 20 years later. I don't know when Moonfall came out exactly. And we've got um, Neil Stevenson's novel, Seven Eves, which has essentially the same plot. Something I'm not giving anything away here because this is all in the first, well, the first hundred pages, which is barely, <laughs> barely the beginning of a Neil Stevenson novel. No, um, no. <laughs> something breaks up the moon into seven fragments, and the fragments start colliding with each other, and uh, eventually they, they, they form a kind of shell around the Earth, which I think is called the white sky, and eventually the pieces of it start falling to Earth. Millions of, of bolides, of, um, of, of fragments of rock, uh, that destroy the Earth. They, they wipe out everything on the surface of the Earth. They make it unlivable. This is all going to happen within two years. I don't know if it adds up or not, but as far as I could tell, Neil Stevenson had done enough homework to figure out that it would take about two or three years for this process to happen, but that you could pretty much destroy the world by having the moon fall on it. Um, well, yeah. He, he sold me on it. In, I mean, if, if you go back further, there was a novel in the 1930s called uh, The Hopkins Manuscript by a British writer named R.C. Sheriff, where the moon falls to the earth and lands in the Pacific Ocean or something. And it's just dumb by our standard. Um, but that was not convincing at all. I didn't find the McDevitt thing convincing, although the novel that followed was fine. The Neil Stevenson thing, I'm thinking, he's somebody who must have checked this stuff out. Uh, he probably <laughs> was right. Yeah, but, but then, is, okay, here's the thing. Is he someone who checked this stuff out? As you say, probably did. Or is he someone who's trading in his fiction a little bit on the feeling that you think that anyone who wrote something this long has surely actually checked it out. That would be an interesting question, and at some point we will have to ask him about that, I think. Um, he's usually been fairly meticulous in, uh, in, in, in the way he used science in, in, in Cryptonomicon. He certainly mm. spent a lot of time working out uh, the workings of the Royal Society and what they did. So, so the science fiction I know of from Neil Stevenson. For people who aren't familiar with this novel, which I don't think is actually out yet. No, it's not. It comes out um, next month. It's a, it's a May book, right? Yeah. Um, is this is I hate I hate I hate to use this phrase because you see it in reviews all the time. The return to science fiction of Neil Stevenson, just like you see the return to science fiction of God knows Jonathan Lethem or whoever. Um, but it is a it is a classic science fiction scenario. And if it's as meticulous in its research as his prior fiction has been, then I'm, I'm sure he talked to astronomer, astronomers and physicists and so forth about uh, how you could do this. Uh, partly because of this. Um, if your goal, as you said, is to create an environment in which the world is flooded or completely destroyed or annihilated or the surface burned away, all you have to do is spend the first few chapters getting there. And yeah. once you've gotten there, uh, then, then you just write your novel. Um, so, why would he spends? Uh, and, and he spends a lot of time talking about the basic principles of physics. Neil Stevenson is a lecturer. He is somebody who likes to explain things at great length in his in his novels. And some of us find that no problem. Um, why do you unless think? It's Sorry, this is something. Oh, in which case he's explaining things yeah. that are too simple. Why do you think a uh, science fiction seems to attract lecturers? 
because I think it attracts people who like ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that the, the, the things that fascinate writers, the, the, the writers who most often probably get accused of info dumps um, among contemporary writers are Neil Stevenson and Kim Stanley Robinson. Sure. And Stan Robinson has written and spoken very eloquent defenses of the info dump to the extent of objecting to the use of that term. Um, because he's absolutely right. This is not something science fiction writers invented. This is not something that hasn't been seen in other forms of fiction. If you read War and Peace, you're going to get a lot of history of the Napoleonic Wars that tell you very little about the interactions of the characters in that novel. So there's a love of information that draws us all to science fiction in the first place, I think. I think it's a fair call. One thing that interests me as well, I mean, I was reading a comment the other day, and this is relevant, um, about how some were saying that sort of Robert A. Heinlein would either struggle to be published or str struggle to win awards these days. Now, my own contention mm -hmm. is that Robert A. Heinlein, if he was a 40-year-old man today, would actually write radically different fiction than the fiction that he wrote because he was such Absolutely. a canny commercial writer. And I think that's a very... Uh, compelling argument even though he was a great political ranter but I wonder to set aside that little tossed off comment uh, do you think that the great didactic writers of the 40s who were lionized in retrospect would fare any better than Stevenson or, S or um, Robinson do today now I'm thinking I mean like Clark you can't say that uh, no, not Clark Asimov uh, Asimov with foundation you can't say that's not full of didactic chunks of stuff um, you, you can't say that Dune isn't full of great didactic chunks of stuff and yet mm -hmm. those books are lionized with 50 years of or so of filter to look through um, do you think they would do as well today well, you mentioned Dune, which is. Are, are we right that we agreed that this is the fifth? This year is the fiftieth anniversary. It is indeed. Of Dune. It is indeed. It was a nineteen sixty-five novel. And and this, and I was just looking at it uh, three or four days ago. Uh, it it does the Dune itself. I'm not talking about necessarily all the seventy or eighty. You know, the God help us, Emperor. God help us, another sequel to Dune, which is what the National Lampoon put in it once. But Dune itself really holds up, and it doesn't strike me that it's uh, particularly clotted with exposition. There's a lot of uh, political and mystical stuff. He did a very clever thing in the novel in order to write the novel he wanted, which was to basically outlaw millennia ago. Uh, computers and artificial intelligence have been outlawed in this universe, so he can force the universe he wants into his narrative, which is a universe of human computers and... Uh, Bene Gesserits and, mm -hmm. and Tats and so and so on. Uh, so when I was looking at it, it didn't strike me that it had clots like that at all. But I think Dune was one of the novels that made that transition from the older kind of um, Asimovian or Clarkian lectures to the more recent um, uh, idea that, that you can do this, but you're doing it in the service of a narrative, not just to teach a lesson. Heinlein, I think, did it from the beginning. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, until you get to the later Heinlein, when he just basically wanted a pulpit, he was. He, there's remarkably, there were remarkably few info dumps of that sort in early Heinlein stories and novels. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, Dune is almost contemporaneous within a couple of years. I think uh, Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner came out, and I, th I think off the top of my head, about sixty-seven or sixty-eight. Probably, yeah. 
And it also experimented very much with that same kind of thing, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, there you were dealing with... I, I think it's a different kind of experimentation. I think Dune was um, a kind of end point of a certain kind of science fiction, which was the astounding kind of science fiction. Uh, you, you, you can build larger and larger intergalactic empires and have emperors and have messiahs and so forth and, and draw on a lot of Arabian history and, and various other things in doing it. He wasn't writing experimental fiction, though. He was writing an epic based on old science fiction principles. The other books that were coming out, maybe, maybe it was maybe a decade after Dune or so, but there was, there was a kind of contest, it seemed to me, going on in the 60s and 70s in American science fiction to write the epic. Dune was the epic. The Mode in God's Eye uh, was supposed to be the epic. Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. In other words, suddenly science fiction could publish books of more than 400 pages. Yeah. I think what's, what Brunner was, was doing was closer, more allied to the new wave, although apparently he did not get along that well with the new wave itself, in using modernist techniques and taking techniques that had been developed by John Dos Passos for his USA trilogy. Mm. Parenthetically, the same techniques that, that Kim Stanley Robinson borrowed for 2312. So that was, that was trying to reimagine science fiction in a new form, not just a big epic-sized version of an old science fiction astounding adventure, but a new way of portraying the future in fragments and, and excerpts. And uh, the, If he'd known about podcasts, he certainly would have put podcasts in that novel. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting as well when we talk about things like June and then about Stand on Zanzibar and then on through decades forward to things like 2312 is they do see, I think the evolution of science fiction where we see more and more cutting edge well not more and more we see cutting edge work continue to appear and to be considered award worthy and noteworthy and moving into the mm -hmm. canon where you know less of the, that kind of recognition falls to perfectly good high quality entertaining fiction that doesn't seem to move forward the argument of science fiction do you think that's a fair observation I think it's a very fair observation. I think that's one of the things that, uh, I mean, it, it, it obviously, the, the, the subtext, people who are listening to this have figured out there's a sub-subtext of this conversation, which has to... <laughs> we're subtweeting ourselves, Gary. Well, okay, we, we're not fooling ourselves. But the, uh, but the fact is, the good old days never really existed. They, you know, they, they, they were not the good old days when they were the good old days. They were the good old days because people remembered the kind of discovery of science fiction um, that... It, for, for a certain generation and maybe a certain attitude among readers was flat-out adventure science fiction. People loved planet stories. People loved astounding in the 50s. People loved analog in the 70s, whatever it was. Um, and I think that there's a conflict between that kind of reader. I'm not even going to say that generation because I think it's a kind of reader. And the kind of people who, who discovered science fiction because it was so varied, because it had stories by uh, Samuel R. Delaney that you had not read the likes of before because it had Roger Zelazny sort of mixing up things or Philip Jose Farmer doing renegade things. I think there are readers who loved science fiction's chaotic renegade attitude, which really exploded in the 60s and 70s, and there are writers who just want it to be the way it was. Yeah, but see, readers the, the thing that I think that misses, and maybe I over-romanticize this and someone who's much more knowledgeable, and there are many people who are, would correct me, but 
I wonder if what gets romanticized is what was cutting edge fiction of a previous period. You know, I mean, we talk about good old adventure fiction, but I mean, it looks to me like if you go back to the mid thirties, good old adventure fiction was the cutting edge form of science fiction of its day. And it's just a fondness for a cutting edge kind of fiction of a previous period and a lack of affection for newer forms of cutting edge fiction that becomes the issue. It could be. I don't, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And I cannot honestly get inside the heads of, of people who think science fiction has abandoned its roots in some way, because uh, if it didn't abandon its roots every 10 years, I don't think it'd be science fiction. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're right. The, the, the 1930s had a certain kind of space opera. It had a certain kind of Hugo Gernsback, um, Doc Smith ethic that, uh, that, that people liked. But at the same time, the 30s was beginning to publish these long, far future things like John W. Campbell's Twilight, these almost mournful end of the universe things that you could see looking forward all the way to, to writers like Stephen Baxter and, 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 and Neil Stevenson. Uh, so, so there were there were seeds of rebellion in every generation of science fiction writers. Sure. Oh. Well, let, let's lay something a little bit more overtly on the table here, Gary. Just as we're you know, yeah, name checking things. To some degree, we're referring to the 2015 Hugo Awards ballot that came out the weekend before last. And mm -hmm. you know, if you were to go through the history of this podcast, we are inveterate awards commentators, Gary. We have spoken. It seems like whole years of this podcast were devoted to not much else than talking about awards. And well, yet, something must have gone wrong with us. And yet, you know, I mean, I think this year, I know I have felt, before this happened, a strong desire not to talk about awards in 2015 and to do other things. I feel like it's oh. a conversation to some degree we've had. That's why I think even as of now, we've not discussed the Nebula Awards ballot in any no, detail at all. We didn't even mention, I think we mentioned the Crawford Award winner this year, but... Uh, yeah, and I, I did but, a side but, podcast yeah. about the Aurealis Awards, but we've been moving away from talking about them, or at least stepping away for a while, and this draws us back. And I guess one of the subtexts to the current argument, and I don't want to get into a lot of it, is about oh. a desire for old-style fun science fiction that is pure entertainment. Uh-huh. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical that the work that gets lionized these days as having been works of pure entertainment ever were. And I just read Walter John Williams on his blog reading, uh, writing about uh, Stranger in Strange Land. And uh -huh. that, that was quite interesting because he was talking about how people talk about how Heinlein wasn't a political writer and all this, and yet you read Stranger in Strange Land and basically it is a long, long series of philosophical chunks with a bit of story stuck in between it mm -hmm. and that's all it is it's all f philosophy and politics and nothing but and yet that sort of gets elided from memory i mean i, I mean if you're to, to have asked me how i recall stranger strange right land that's not particularly how how i do i mean time enough for love very much so but stranger yeah. not so much but in retrospect i think it's probably a pretty fair description on walter's behalf and it Makes, yeah. makes, makes, me, makes me wonder how clear-eyed those who look back fondly on that sort of fiction actually are being. Uh, my, my suspicion is that they're not specifically thinking about things like that. They may be thinking about movies like Star Wars. They may be thinking about novelizations of Star Wars movies. Uh, my objection to the idea of old-fashioned entertainment science fiction is entertaining for whom? 
Sure. Um, I mean, the most uh, one of the things I remember uh, as a young person. This is one of the uh, if. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I think it's going to happen. If we do a 1960s volume for the Library of America, well, the first one of the first things I thought of was Samuel R. Delaney's Nova. Yeah. Uh, and Chip knows this, so it's not going to be a shock to him. Uh, Nova, in many ways, was an old-fashioned space opera, but there is a whole generation of readers who find that exciting for all kinds of reasons other than the old-fashioned space opera. Sure. In other words, old-fashioned entertaining science fiction might mean something completely different for somebody who started reading it after the year 2000. You know, old-fashioned entertaining science fiction could be Rachel Swirsky stories. They could be Hanu Roy and Yemi stories. Well, um, that, there's an element of truth to that. Um, I don't know. I mean, also, I, I think it seems to lead to a look at simpler books. I mean, I, I will say I've taken, I've started to take a look, Gary. Uh, I'll, I'll foreshadow this. At the 2015 novel ballot, not the rest of the ballot, mm -hmm. uh, for a possible podcast with Ian Mond. Now, our friend Ian Mond, who you know very well from the podcast, uh, and who appears on the Writer, Writer and Critic, has been spending this, is spending this year reading nothing but awards ba ba novel ballots from across the field and across literature. And so he's committed to reading all of the best novel nominees for this year's Hugos. And I, I, that's brave. It's honorable of him. It's very honorable of him. I, I should send him a card. And <laughs> I will say, I have, I said, I'll, at the very least, I will do the, the least version of this, and I will read the Kindle excerpt versions, mm -hmm. which means I'll read the opening four chapters. But there is one characteristic of these novels that strikes me compared to the classic era of uh, science fiction novels, and that is uh, that, that people hark back to quite often, say the forties, fifties, and that mm. is they're not very efficient books, any of them. I mean, there are five books there, irrespective of their origins and politics. Mm. I don't think any one of them is under one hundred and fifty thousand words long, and at least one of them tops a quarter of a million words. Which means we're typically, you know, dealing with books that are as long or longer than June, which at one point was considered just about the longest damn science fiction novel you'd ever seen. Right, exactly. It was, it was massive, and so was Stranger, and so was The Moat and Eye, and so was Stand on Zanzibar. That was, that was when science fiction realized it could accommodate six and seven hundred and eight hundred yeah. page novels. And what strikes me is a lot of these entertainments that we're talking about aren't very efficient vehicles. You know, they have an awful lot of words in them that seem to get in the way of the story. And this is what struck me when I read Tom Clancy's The Hunt for Red October once, uh -huh. years ago, right? Uh, there was some th really very, very good thriller-paced, engaging, active, active stuff. And then long mm. chunks of turgid info dump. You know? And... Even Tom Clancy novel, unless you want to learn how to operate a nuclear submarine, which you may have to do at any moment. Well, yeah, well, that's true. Look, I mean, I read Hunt for Red October because I'd seen the movie and it was a bit of fun. And I thought, everybody mm. goes on about him, he sells a billion books, let's read one. And it wasn't that it was bad, it's just that chunks of it were really boring. Um, and I'm not going to foreshadow my own views on any of the five novels that are up for the best Hugo this year, other than to say I don't think any of them stand up against June. Well, and I think the other which was thing the, is which the, is the first Hugo Award not was not one of the first no it was the first Nebula Award winning novel. It was sixty five. No, the Hugo Award started when in the fifties. It's the first Nebula Award winner. First Nebula Award winning novel. Yes. 
Um, and uh, I mean, it, it's interesting because a novel can be six or seven hundred pages long and very efficient. Uh, there are novels that we don't even remember. One of the novels I reread for this project I'm working on was Earth Abides, which won the first International Fantasy Award back in 1950. It came out in 1949. George R. Stewart, not even a science fiction writer, and it's maybe it's maybe 450 pages long. It doesn't seem like that at all. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're right. I think that there's a bloating that goes on in fiction, and it's not limited to science fiction at all. Uh, and some of it has to do with info dumps. Some of it has to do with a, a lot of action, but the action gets repetitive. Now, I've only read maybe two or three of the really big Peter Hamilton novels, which are very good adventure novels, and they don't have a lot of info dumps in them. But yeah. they do tend to have the same adventures over and over and over again. Yeah. So, I mean, look. I don't know. I'll be interested to see how the world looks back on this particular Hugo Slate. I will be interested to check in. I, I don't know if you want to be part of the reading challenge, Gary. I don't think I will. Here's one of the things I thought about that. And I actually am, pop, I mean, I am more or less committed to going to the Worldcon this year in Spokane for personal reasons. And, I'm, and, and suddenly, instead of sort of an enthusiastic sort of conversations about literature, I, I suddenly feel like I'm a, a cultural anthropologist going into an alien territory and, and, and meeting tribal behaviors that I'm not familiar with. Um, but I think the one thing that I've thought about, and I've, I've, I've seen a lot of people say the same thing on, on the web, is because there is a list of Hugo, Hugo finalists, uh, or because, for that matter, if there were a list of Nebula finalists, this is true of the Locus Awards, because there's a Locus recommended reading list doesn't mean you have to choose from that list. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to agree with uh, the, the, the nominators that these are the things you have to read. And the notion that you cannot, you, you are now not permitted to vote on the Hugo Awards unless you assiduously read through the ballot is nonsense. That's never been true. The Hugo, Hugo final voting has never been, except for I think a small minority of readers, based on people conscientiously downloading the Hugo packet and reading everything in it. I think well, a lot I mean, of readers but a lot don't. Look, the, the Hugo Packet itself, which obviously has been a, a move to encourage people to be better informed about what they're voting for, is only, I don't know how many years, five years old or so. Uh, and I mean, if I were to I mean, I've heard a lot of people say around the issues to do with the Hugo Awards that the Hugo Awards are broken. Now, personally i don't believe the hugo awards are broken at all and i doubt they need much if any rule changes i think they're a pretty efficient machine it's just they've been used in a way they're not intended to be used mm. um but when i look at it if there's a point that, that you could look at it and say there's a failing it's in i think the historical approach to the nominating phase for the awards and i think that is actually that that weakness weak approach is supported by the voting packet not counterbalanced and i say that because what i think the great weakness is there's a lot of people who vote for the hugos who don't read anything until the hugo ballot is out they they basically Ooh. step back from the whole nominating phase and then what they do is they read say well i'll read the packet and i'll judge based on that now there's nothing wrong wrong in fact, it's, it's a good thing to read the packet and, and judge based on that but if you've yeah. not voted up front, what it means is a small number of people are nominating, and that's what happens. And I've always had a slight nagging feeling that, actually, when I look at Hugo ballots, that maybe more conservative stuff has been historically 
underrepresented in the last 15 or 20 years. But as much as anything, because the people who support that stuff don't really participate in the nominating phase in any numbers. You know, and it's getting people involved in nominating that I think will make a difference. It, it, it's probably true that a lot of people set out the nominating phase. I, I don't think it's true that there's been a, a, a small elite cadre of people pushing a particular slate no. in the past. No, I, I don't believe that you, at all. You, you can look at Hugo nominations over the last 20 years, and you will find certain patterns that very popular writers will always get nominated for a Hugo Award. Ideology aside, yep. um, people, if, 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 there's, if there's a Neil Gaiman novel out or a Connie Willis novel out, it's going to get nominated for a Hugo Award. Uh, because they're extremely popular writers. That has nothing to do with a political agenda at all. It just has to do with writers' individual popularity and the fact that some writers are just absolutely beloved in the field. Um, the idea of trying to organize to fight against a couple that you cannot demonstrate even exists strikes me as frankly venal. Oh, look, there's, there's very little to like about it, about, about what's happened, what's been done. Um, and not much to do about it other than to wait it out. I, I will no, it, it, Yeah. I guess my point is that whether the Hugos are broken or not, the Hugos have never been science fiction. Nothing that's happened in the last few weeks is doing any significant damage to science fiction whatsoever. No, not at all, no. I mean, uh, Hugo, I, actually, if, if anything, what it is unfortunately doing is it's, it's, it's making more nakedly visible some of the less pleasant, pleasant parts about online culture around science fiction. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, science fiction is no more or less... Uh, inclusive. It's no more or less conservative. It's no more or less anything than it was before this this all happened. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm sad to see some of the more hateful aspects of it there. And I think that when you move out towards the more extreme right wing, I mean, out towards the more extreme right wing of the whole th affair, it gets very unpleasant very quickly. And mm -hmm. that that's unfortunate to see attached to our field. And, you know, hopefully it, it won't be a dominant thing in years to come. I mean, I, I do wonder if we're going to look back at two different eras of the Hugos, though. You know, like Hugo's classic and Hugo's, you know, sort of new recipe. I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me uh, about it, and which is probably more meaningful to Americans than it is to Australians or, or, or Brits, or the, what we call the steroid era in American baseball, where you had people like Mark McGuire setting home run records and, 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 and all with asterisks because they were later drummed out of the sport because of their use of uh, drugs, because it was a, a, essentially a way of fixing their statistics. Um, and I could see, you know, at some point, if, if, if not an official asterisk in the Hugo record books, an unofficial asterisk that, you know, these awards weren't really following any normal set of procedures. They were they were unexpectedly ambushed or hijacked uh, by a group of people. And this could happen for years. This could go it could, on. Yeah. It could be another decides to hijack in another direction. Here's a weird question to circle around all this a little bit. Based mm -hmm. upon the, the stated, uh, as opposed to anything else, but the stated intentions of the more moderate of the conservative people nominating for these awards, who have influenced it so heavily they say that they're looking to bring back the good old stuff surely the rationale they use is very very similar to the rationale behind neil stevenson's hieroglyph and i assume neil stevenson's seven eaves 
I don't think that bringing back the good old stuff, because the good old stuff is a vague phrase. Well, it the is, but I, mean, it, but I mean, Neil seems to be talking about the good old purpose, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. I well, mean, I mean, he does, he does uh, you're talking about the whole hieroglyph. We yeah, should have yeah. Isn't that sort of thing? Um, let's talk there, about the science, let's, talk, let's be positive, let's talk about the future, let's change things. I mean, that is surely the classic sci-fi kind of attitude. I mean, the guy should get a, a platinum propeller beanie for it. I don't think that science fiction can be necessarily classified in one camp or the other anymore. And a, a, a good example, I think Neil Stevenson, in his fiction, whatever he says in his editorials and his essays, in his fiction seems conflicted about this. It turns out that Seven Eves is full of big engineering projects. It's full of some great ideas about how you can um, terraform the Earth. The only problem with these big engineering product projects is that you have to completely burn the face of the Earth to send her in order for these to start. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I, I feel a little bit conservative about that one, yeah. And actually, yeah, one exactly. of the, actually it's funny. Well, uh, sorry, what are you going to say? So the, the other example is Kim Stanley Ross, and 2312, or we We'll talk about Aurora later when we have Kim on the podcast. Yeah. But 2312 is both extremely optimistic and extremely pessimistic. I don't think you can easily deal with complex modern science fiction by saying it's either good old-fashioned engineering, uh, we can do it kind of attitudes, or sort of uh, the kind of negative, uh, the, the kind of attacks that, uh, that fr frankly, right-wing British uh, fans undertook on Interzone 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's too pessimistic. It doesn't believe uh, about the future of England. It's, it's depressing and so forth and so on. Modern science fiction is sophisticated enough to be both. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, we shall see what happens come, um, come August when mm -hmm. deeply, deeply ironically on, I believe, the centenary of James Tiptree Jr.'s birth, I think that's right, on it's the exact day, on the exact day, I think, Gary, of the centenary, mm -hmm. they will present these Hugo Awards. Well, and it's, it's, it's probably, uh, I probably am not misrepresenting these people who I would be perfectly willing to represent, misrepresent, that, that Tiptree uh, is probably one of the villains. Tiptree is probably, in their view, one of the people that shifted science fiction toward a leftist, feminist, liberal bias uh, in her fiction. But the irony, of course, if you read her fiction, she, she had very efficient plots. She had some real horror story elements in things like the screw fly solution. In other words, the, the science fiction writers that are being accused of having shifted the agenda to left liberalism, including Joanna Ross, um, wrote, in some cases, good old-fashioned science fiction stories with, you know, Suspenseful plots and uh, sympathetic protagonists. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's. I, th I think it's what what bothers me about it most is it's not just really about science fiction. And as I say, it's going to do no damage to science fiction at all. Is that it's a massively simplistic view of what literature is and does in general. Yes, I mean, it's I have to say that at least part of it really looks an awful lot like me and my mates weren't on the ballot, so let's fix that. Yeah. But it's, I don't know that that's true, but I will say that's what it looks like. So, but anyway, look, we, yes. will look, we will look back on this in years to come. And we'll certainly, I have no doubt that, I mean, 
you say you may be going to Spokane. I can honestly say that I'd never intended to go to Spokane. <laughs> so this has made no, you know, had no impact on that for me. Uh, similarly, I don't expect to go to Kansas City next year. I'm taking my family to Italy instead, oh, that's um, which I think should be much more fun. I will say, though, there are a couple of World Cons. And, yeah, there are times when I've thought, I don't know if I'll be going back to World Con. There are a couple of World Con bids, Gary, that if they win, you'd have to work hard to keep me away. FinCon would be a very tempting thing to do. FinCon looks very tempting. I have to say that Dublin looks even more tempting. Because that's your home turf. Well, I'm from Belfast, but yeah, yeah. Well, it's close enough. It's an excuse to go to, to take my family to Ireland for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. and that's awfully attractive. So, you know, I think getting that tourism in is compelling. Um, but yeah, for me, it's like Saratoga this year, and I know you're, you're going, you're all set up. Have you voted in this year's World Fantasy Awards, Gary? I have not voted yet. Don't forget to. I did vote. This is something else we should remind people. I did vote in the Locus Awards, which are closing in about a week now. Three days. Oh, okay. Depending on when we get this up, yeah. April 15th. April 15th, yeah. Well, one of the things that it, it did occur to me with this uh, kerfuffle about, about the Hugos uh, is that uh, simply because of the almost comically absurd nature of that ballot, frankly. Things like the Nebula Awards, the Locus Awards, the World Fantasy Awards, the Clark Awards, take on a certain prominence that they may not have had in other years. Well, I think what they do is they certainly highlight the value of a broader awards process across the field. I mean, mm. the day that the, well, the Hugo ballot came out on Saturday of last weekend, and within 48 hours, four other sets of either ballots or winners had been announced across mm. other awards, you know. So we do not lack for awards at all. And if you take a step back, I mean, I, I used to think the, far more interesting than who did or didn't win a Locus Award was to take a step back and look at the long list that was published in Locus, you know, like the month after. And you would mm -hmm. see the top 30 or 40 works in each category. And then what you could do is look and see overall things about the movement in the field. Well, for it's also true if you look across awards, right? Then mm -hmm. you sort of see a broader pattern about perception of excellence. excellence. I mean, if you take into account the Hugos and the Nebulas and the World Fantasies and the, and the Tip Trees and the Carl Brandon and the... Uh, Aurealis's and the British Science Fiction Award and the all these others, right? Then you get a broad, much broader picture when you sort of uh, 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 boil, when you boil down the top handful of works of the year, and some of them appear on the Hugo ballot and some of them don't. Well, that's always been the case, I think. And one of the things that's happened in the last fifty years of the Hugo Awards or so is that the field has become so much more diverse in ways that that would both infuriate and not infuriate. The, the the people who are trying to currently hijack its ballot. Oh sure. I've never looked at the Hugo Awards as a as a reading list. I may have looked at the Hugo Awards as a reading list when I was a kid, uh, because there was a relatively narrow, coherent field, and you would think that okay, the and, and there there were major major figures in the field. There were you know there were Clark and Heinlein and Asimov and Herbert and Sturgeon and so forth and so on. So the Hugo Awards were kind of a guide to reading. Now I think you have to look at a long list, and I think the local—I know it sounds like we're promoting our own magazine—but the Locust Awards long list is one which has been thought out and is pretty interesting. When I look down the Locust Awards list, I'm thinking, I want to read that book. I want to read that. So a lot of them I've read, obviously, but I'm looking at the short stories and novellas, 
And I'm picking out the things that match my tastes. I'm not trying to figure out, I have to read these because everybody thinks they're the five best. We're no longer in a field where different groups of readers are going to agree on the five best of anything. And I think that's good news. It is good news. I will say there's a, a, another issue which is now laid even more openly on the table for me than it had been before as a result of the Hugos. Uh, and you'd seen it related to the World Fantasy Awards. Mm. And it's this issue of, if you are troubled by the politics of the writer, do you read them, support them, or whatever else? Mm. And I think that's brought even more to the fore now than it ever has been before. You're left with politics laid bare, and then that comes into play. If you want to be involved in politics, I guess that's true. You need to... If, if you're viewing... No, no, I, I, I'm going to disagree. I'll tell you why. Very, very simple personal example. I am one of three children, right? Uh-huh. B- both my brother and sister are non-straight, right? Mm-hmm. If an author is publicly stating very firmly homophobic views particularly views that are that argue for physical violence against gays and right. lesbians and whoever else i'm going to struggle to read their work anyway not just making a public decision it's like i feel like it becomes almost like an attack on my family rather than anything else it's like well i'm not going to support you i'm not going to read your stuff i find it distasteful now mm-hmm. and that's kind of hard to i mean i'm not entirely comfortable with that in some ways i kind of feel like look um, you should judge a book by, by what's on the page. But I'm mm-hmm. on, it makes me very uncomfortable. It's an issue which... Um, I mean, it, it's, it's not a new issue to literature. No, Maybe an no. Issue that's more or less unfamiliar to science fiction. I mean, one of the problems you always come up with is... Uh, actually, we talked about this when Ken Liu was on the podcast. Yeah. You come across arguably a great American modernist poet like Ezra Pound, who was a fascist. Uh, and in, in, in some very ugly ways he was a fascist. You have you know, well-known writers who have been anti-Semitic or racist in their views, and to some extent, when that shows up in their fiction, it's really disturbing. Yeah. Um, and I think the same thing is true here. I, th- I think, but the, and, and I would be willing to read fiction by almost anybody if I didn't know what their views were. But the minute I see those views showing up in the fiction, I stop reading. Um, yeah. This... It literally happened to me in science fiction, and since we're into semi-controversial territory, it happened to me with, with Orson Scott Card, who is a terrific storyteller, yep. who drew me into a book and drew me into the, to the Ender series. And the Ender series and the parallel novels and at the Ender's shadow and so forth and so on began to express uglier and uglier attitudes on the part of sympathetic characters. And as I say, when I come across something like that, it bounces me out of the book. I'm no longer reading a science fiction novel. I'm reading a yeah. screed. And it's a screed which I find hurtful and offensive to people, uh, some of whom are in my own family, not just your two siblings, but I've got uh, nieces and, and nephews. So at that point, I just it, it, it destroys the literature. Yeah. Uh, you can be a you could be a venal and nasty person and write beautiful books. I'm sure. Um, part of the reason I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm I was going to say well, part, well, maybe to sort of like pull it back. Then part of the reason I say this is because when I was when we were talking a moment ago about um, reading the Locust Ballot and, I, and, and how you, you you received the Hugo Ballot as a possible reading list, you mm-hmm. know, and I look back to the the time when I did. 
And that was sort of up until the mid-80s, the early 90s. And now the real difference there was I began to get involved enough in the field that I felt I was reading in advance of them and voting for them and trying to influence them how, you know, with my one mm. vote. Before then, however, it was something handed down from on high. The idea you would vote for the Hugos was completely just unthinkable. That wasn't something you would do. Uh, I remember the first time I did, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm actually voting for the Hugos. But up until then, the list would come along, and then, yes, it was a reading list. You go, well, I've read those two, I haven't read those three, I better rush off and read them, because they're going to be great books. Now, mm -hmm. looking back, that was a, a country hick kind of... Uh, and when I say country hick, I have to be very careful. I'm not putting down people who live in rural areas. Just, I lived at the very end of the science fiction supply chain in the world... Uh -huh. And so it was someone at the end of the chain going for, well, how do I find stuff and what gets through? And Hugo winners were, and Nebula winners, and what, were, to a lesser extent, World Fantasy Award winners, were things that did get through and were flagged. And so you'd pay attention to them for that reason. I think flagged is a good reason, is, is, is a good word for that. That you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're a devoted science fiction reader or fantasy reader, uh, you're going to pretty much know what books of the year you like. If you're an occasional reader... Uh, you're going to look at these award nominee ballots and think, oh, maybe I should look at this and maybe I should look at that. Uh, I, I know of very few people who will base their reading on any kind of nomination ballots. And, and possibly the locust recommended reading list comes closer to that than anything else because it's so extensive. Um, and, and I know people find that annoying. If you have a long list of recommended books or a very long list of recommended short stories, as we sometimes do, it can be intimidating. But what it does is it gives you a chance to pick and choose of, of those things that, that, that you in, in individually would like. Uh, the idea of a mono... I mean, one of the things I think that this... It's, it's a disaster this year. I mean, we can use that word for it. But one of the things that it exposes is that there's no longer a monolithic view of uh, science fiction that any one set of readers can be satisfied with. Well, that's, uh, the, that, that's true. And I think nothing underscores that more than the fact that in 2016, next year, there mm. will be 19 different Best of the Year anthology ser series published. There you go. And that's you know. not a bad thing, is it? I, I don't think it is. I think it's more... Well, I mean, okay. Yeah, I think it is, and yet, no, I don't, I don't think it is. The... No, I don't think it isn't... Oh, sorry. The thing where I think it's a good thing, right, is anything that gets more diversity in the field i think is good and genuine diversity across the entire spectrum you know, i welcome the year's best military science fiction uh, space opera just as mm. much as i welcome uh you know the the best gaze speculative fiction of 2015 you know but are you going to read both of them i very well might i mean i've looked at this the table of contents for this year's year's best military science fiction and space opera and i know most mm. of the stuff on it read most of the stuff in it and it looks like a good book you know, okay. I mean, we can't get. A, I, I'm, I've been unable to get a review copy from Bain, as is often the case. I actually contacted one of Bain's executive editors to try and get a copy, and got no response whatsoever. So we probably, you know, won't get to review it for the magazine because we can't get a copy of it. Well, uh, well, look. Other than what taking the table of contents and actually going off and finding the stories individually and reading them, which is a step further than we've ever had to go for anybody else's best of the year. But. Uh, for the others, I mean, yeah, I would absolutely read them. I think, you know, there's, there's a value, and I find a value in reading other people's bests of the year as a best of the year editor. 
Be oh, sure. Because I go and I see other views, quite firmly expressed views of excellence, and that's intrinsically interesting. What I am concerned about, and I go on about it in the introduction to Best of the Year 9 that comes out next month, is this idea that the atomization of the field kills off a common view of what's excellent across the year. Partly because there's so much, too much to read and all that, and I, I absolutely get that. But it means there is no shared view. There's no shared, like, oh, well, we all, you know, we went off, we found it, we were interested, and we all came back and talked to each other about what was great and looked as that other thing to move the field forward. That's the thing that I think is getting a weaker in the field. It could be. It could, it, it could be that this uh, the field has become too diverse for its own good in the sense of its own good being naming five novels or five short stories or five novellas that represent the best of everything everybody reads in the field. Um, I think the best, uh, I've, never, I've never really thought of the Hugo Awards as being the best novels or stories or whatever the year. I've always thought of them as being, if you go back now and look at the 1972 Hugos, for example, mm -hmm. uh, I would look at that list and say, if I wanted, if I wanted to get a sense of what was going on in science fiction in 1972, that's probably a good place to start. If I want to get a sense of the stories or novels from 1972, and I just picked that arbitrarily, that are the ones that survive and hold up best today, it may or may not work. Um, it's, 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 it's a celebration. It's, it, was, it, it was a celebration. It was meant to be a celebration of some good books in the field. Uh, well, I mean, certainly, I mean, Joe yeah. Walton did, did a close examination of this for just this very purpose on Tor.com, as mm -hmm. you'll recall. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, right. but I would bet that, you know, there's a couple of, I mean, I'm looking at the 1975, because you and I were talking about 75 earlier before the podcast, at the Hugo ballot for 1975. And you look at the six novels, no, five, five novels that made the list. Mm -hmm. And I would say one of them is forgotten. One of them is an underground classic. The other three are real classics of the field. Now you have to list the titles for us. Well, I guess from the in reverse order that they're actually... No, in alphabetical order, if I can do it on the fly, because not listed in alphabetical order. Fire okay. Time by Paul Anderson, mm -hmm. which I don't think is widely read anymore. Flow My no, Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick, which is my mm -hmm. favorite Philip K. Dick novel. The Inverted World by Christopher Priest, hmm. which I would be the one I would slate as being the underground classic that isn't widely read. His first novel, I believe. The Moat in God's Eye by Larry Niven and Jer Jerry Pornell, which you referred hmm. to earlier as one of the one of the keystone bestseller style science fiction novels. First breakout bestseller, yeah, for hard. And which you would think would would have been warmly received by certain elements of the field today. And then the winner, The Dis Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, okay, it's hard to argue that if you look at all of those as novels mm -hmm. in terms of the, the, the values that we associate with novels from, from language style, characterization, plot structure, and so forth and so on, the Dispossessed is a, is, is a genuine classic. It is. I mean, well, several of them are genuine classics. I mean, even though I, I wonder, I mean, I, I adored The Moat in God's Eye back in, you know, back in the day. I, I don't. I, I don't know whether I would adore it today because I'm a different reader than I once was. You know, but mm. I I do wonder how I would feel about it. All things, you know, taken into account. But this is where I mean, as I was saying, the Locus Award becomes very interesting. Not to rabbit on about it, but at, because mm. it's the source of your long list. You go back and you suddenly see, hey, guess what? The um, 
the top three books for the Locus Award were The Dispossessed, Moat and God's Eye, and Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. And number six was The Inverted World, and number seven was Fire Time. So you're feeling pretty good, but you've mm -hmm. just said to me you think that those are great nominees and wonderful examples of the field. But, for example, you know one book that didn't make the Hugo Ballot that uh, was on the Locus Top Ten? A, a minor book called The Forever War. 1975? Yeah. Wow. Because it's fiction. The Forever War. The 75. 70, no, it did not. Not a, Well, this is The Locus. Oh, The Locus, okay. Yeah, so it didn't win The Locus Award. And some of the other books are blown away on the breeze of memory. You know, it's like, I looked down the 20 books on the Locust Best Novel ballot, and I don't think anybody's reading The Dream Millennium by James White or The Twilights of Briarius by Richard Cowper or The Company of Glory by Edgar pa Pagborn. Not that they're necessarily out of print, but I don't think they're widely talked about. No. And yet you stroll a little bit further down the, the ballot and you get, f well, underground classics now, I guess, like Walk to the End of the World by Susie McKee Charnas as well. Yeah, interesting year. Real, the real value of the locust ballot, not that the dispossessed appears on it, but that it records all these other works of interest from the time. That's exactly my point. That there are different traditions. I mean, when you, even on the final ballot that you mentioned with the dispossessed, science fiction historically has wanted to quote break out in two different ways. It wants to break out and be regarded as literature. It wants to produce writers who are mm. as widely respected as Ursula Le Guin is now. And The Dispossessed was a breakout in a literary sense. But it's always wanted to break out in the bestseller sense. And The Moat and God's Die was supposed to be a bestseller kind of breakout. Mm. And it probably did pretty well. I mean, Niven and Purnell had major bestsellers with novels like Footfall later on. Or oh, yeah. it was in Luc Gary, Lucifer. I loved their books for a long time. They were a lot loved of fun. Them. They were yeah, and, they and I mean, they were the, the first great arcology. I mean, you were talking about arcologies because of Paolo Bacigalupi's novel, The Water Knife. Mm -hmm. They wrote the great arcology novel, you know, amongst other things. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know how I feel about the reading of them now. I suspect I'd find them just as entertaining. You know, it, it, it would be an interesting thing if we had unlimited time to pick a couple of books through history that we loved at a time. Like maybe you and I said, we'll both sit down and try to reread The Moat in God's Eye at the same time and then come back and touch base. Because when you mentioned they wrote the great arcology novel, my first thought was I'm going to argue with you because I think what I think from a point of view of sort of subtlety and literary sophistication, the, the great arcology novel of the 70s was, was Robert Silverberg's The World Inside. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually, there's an interesting point as well, but we won't get to it because we're nearly out of time, Gary. We've waffled can't off. Be out of time. We're, we're almost out of town. We barely started, I know. Mm. Um, uh, and that is that, of course, given that Robert Silverberg himself is a, I think an old school Republican and small C conservative would be my guess. Mm -hmm. um, how his work is, is regarded in the right, on the right today, you know, because I, I just think that's an interesting question to ask. Uh, I, I retain a great regard for Bob's work. I think he's one of the great writers of our field. I think Bob is somebody who, uh, th th this is something we've talked about off and on. I mean, Bob is, um, you're right, he's politically conservative. Tim Powers is politically conservative. Gregory Benford is politically conservative. And you can find attitudes in their fiction, but their fiction is primarily devoted to itself. Yeah. Uh, and I've had conversations, we should actually talk to Tim about this on the podcast sometime. Mm -hmm. When he's in storytelling mode, his job is to tell a story. That's really the way he looks at his fiction. Um, and Gene Wolfe is another good example. Gene Wolfe is a conservative Catholic, but when he's writing Gene Wolfe novels, 
he's writing Gene Wolfe novels. He's not writing coded messages. Uh, well, that's true. I mean, uh, in fact, it did occur to me that people talk about the uh, the political left, political right, and everything else, and I don't know what Gene Wolfe's politics are, but I would have thought that if there was a real leftist conspiracy, Gene Wolfe actually would have won the Hugo at some point. Probably true. Uh, I mean, you look at the people who haven't won Hugos, it's hard to hold up the idea of, a, uh, of, of an elite literary leftist conspiracy because of people like Gene Wolfe not having one or uh, somewhere, you pointed this out recently on Facebook, that um, Mark Kelly's science fiction database uh, includes a whole list of people who have never won and another list of people who have never been nominated. Hey, guess what? Names like Ray Bradbury. I, I, I was shocked, Gary, shocked. Somebody retweeted the, you know, this week the, you know, the Hugo Awards stats, right? And the, you know, the never winners and all that stuff. I'm on the never winners list now, Gary. I made it. You're, you're with, with, with 10 nominations without winning? Is that Yeah, 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 yeah. That puts me Congratulations. like... Congratulations. It makes me like equal third or equal fourth. And, I mean, I, I would perhaps like to quibble with uh, the list compiler and say, I mean, 10 times honored, Gary, not 10 times losing. Um, I don't feel like a never winner. Well... I, that's true. I understand. Nominees, but he, he's trying to make a distinction. He's trying to make a point, I think. Oh, I it. know he is. I and know he never is. never yeah. winner, he uses the term never winner instead of loser. I know. Uh, and and, I'm, and I, I, I'm kidding a little bit. But. Until a few years ago, the record holder there was David Hartwell with something like 40-some 12 billion, maybe 14 billion. Yeah. Actually, and, and I think the, the runner-up used to be with 75 billion Stan Schmidt. Who is now yeah. one, which is great, and I, I think he deserved to, and I think David deeply deserved to. I think both of them really did. So, anyway, we have reached the end of this perambulation that is the Coot Street Podcast. I think Gary, episode whatever is seven hundred and ninety-five. Yeah, we're, we're, or two hundred twenty-six. Now we we we're no longer responsible for mathematics or historical. Yeah, that's right. Well, two hundred twenty-nine actually, Gary. Exactly. Fine. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, <laughs> it, it it really kind of bothers me I've, I've tried to think sort of once i'm dead and gone gary and my kids go looking around for samples of my voice to remember me by as i've done with as people doing the world photos it's like there's going to be like 500 hours of this it's going to be like john crowley's story snow where you have hundreds and hundreds of hours of recorded video of somebody but it can only be randomly accessed. You never know what you're going to listen to. <laughs> or probably far, you know, well, yes, that and the whole idea that what they'll probably do is listen to about 20, well, four minutes of it and go, well, it's nice to hear the voice, but honestly, there's nothing there I want to listen That's to. There. <laughs> and, and I, as I have occasionally, I will once again tip my hat to all of those brave listeners out there, those slightly crazy, unbalanced, brave listeners out there who've actually listened to all... At this point, 229 episodes of the Coot Street Podcast. Congratulations to all of them, and we should buy them a cake or something if you show up. Again, as we've said before, if any of our listeners are going to be at... Well, I'll be at the Nebulas, I'll be dude, at... Spokane. Dude, we have, we have piked on this terribly. We, we actually have to have... I'm going to talk over you, sorry. We have to have an actual drinking session in the bar in Saratoga Springs where we can say that if you're there, we'll be there. And we'll hang out. And we will announce this on the podcast and on our website in advance. Yes, absolutely. And who knows, maybe by then we'll have started up our own award. That's true, absolutely. Uh, I mean, but, Hugo's kind of a, you know, aging... It's, kind, yeah, it's Look, it's dead. Everyone says it's dead. 
Ah, what do we call it? The Kudi? I don't know. What's Hugo spelled backwards? Ogub? <laughs> no, we'll call it the, the Kud Street Podcast Awards. The Kud Street, the Kud Street Awards. That sounds pretty. The good. Kud Streets, and of course, frankly, in the interests of fairness, only you and I can be nominees, Gary. I think that's the best way to do it. <laughs> and uh, if we if we can just get two categories or three categories going, we'll both have a reasonable chance of winning one of them. <laughs> we should do the awards. The, the awards have always been done backwards. We should start the Kud Street Awards by naming the winners. Of oh. And then moving backward and having nominees, and then moving backward and having people who do the nominations. Well, so that they, they can behave the way they should and recognize our wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> it's absolutely. This, this, this is deteriorating, Gary. I think it's time to stop. Yes, now. it is. We're done. Yeah, we need to stop. <laughs> okay. I have no idea what we're doing next week, Gary, but we will be back next week. I think, at least I know I did. I don't think you did as much. I'm committed to trying to get all 52 episodes out in one year of the podcast, and so far this looks like being the year. We have some plans. We have some guests lined up. It's just a matter of getting scheduling done, and we'll have some really excellent podcasts, probably for the month of May, when a lot of interesting yeah, books are coming. absolutely. Well, until next weekend, Gary. Until the next weekend. This is and remains the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>